Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites, and it's our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. This is part two in the series titled America's Constitutional Idolatry. I think we can subtitle this particular message, The Legislative Intent of God's Law. Under the heading of the divine laws of God, the first thing that we would have would be the commandments. The commandments are listed at Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. They're confirmed in writing at 24.4 and 32.15 to 16. Then the second thing under the legislative intent of God's law are the statutes. Those statutes are scattered throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and even a bit in Genesis, but predominantly in the first five books of the Bible. And thirdly, we would have the judgments. The judgments are also scattered throughout those various uh, books of the Bible. Probably the most predominant aspect of the judgments is the finality or the totality of the judgments. Those are listed at Deuteronomy chapter 28, and they're categorized as blessings in obedience at Deuteronomy 28, 1-13, and curses in disobedience at Deuteronomy 28, 16-68. Now, to give you this sense of the legislative intent of God's law, let's go to chapter 19 of Exodus, and we'll begin at verse 3. And Moses went unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. End quote. So what we have here is God speaking to Moses and giving him what is the legislative intent of the law. These are going to be a peculiar people, above all the people of the earth. And they're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, there are a number of other scriptures which will confirm this as well and ratify for you in your mind that these people were to be a blessing to the world. This seed of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, Jacob Israel, whose name was changed to Israel, these were the people that were going to form a multitude of nations. These were the people that were going to be a blessing to the world. So this is the legislative intent of God's law is a servant nation to bring about God's righteous will upon the face of the earth. Now, many in the Christian world profess that this constitutional structure of the United States of America was taken from the biblical record of Exodus 18. And let's go ahead and begin with verse 13. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou dost to the people? Why sitst thou alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning unto even? 
Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing thou dost is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee, thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to God word, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee. But every small matter they shall judge, so shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. And if thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. End quote. Now what can we learn from this? The first thing we should be able to learn and understand is that in verse 16, Moses says that he makes them know the statutes of God and his laws. So this implies and indicates that Moses has a knowledge of the statutes of God and his laws. And he makes these statutes, these laws, known unto them as they come unto him with a matter. The other thing that we should be able to glean is that it says in verse 26 that they judge the people at all seasons. And it says the hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judge themselves. So what we have here is the people not in a legislative authority over one another, but rather in a judicial fashion judging one another in accordance with the legislation of God. So there is the legislative intent. Legislative intent is God is the legislator, and these are to judge one another in matters in accordance to God's law. Now, let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verses 9 to 17, which is that companion chapter that I mentioned. If you go to uh, chapter 1, verse 9, I spake to you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. The Lord God your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And you answered me and said, The thing that thou hast spoken is good for us to do. So I took the chief of your tribes, wise men and known, and made them heads over you, captains over thousands and captains over hundreds and captains over fifties and captains over tens, and officers among your tribes. I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, 
and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. End quote. So there's the companion scripture in Deuteronomy. Now, the question is, where did Jethro's counsel, or where did Moses command in Deuteronomy 1, 9-17, where did it include to write unto these people a constitution? Where did it include write unto them a constitution and provide a provision to hold elections? Where did it include to form representatives? Where did it include not to bother with legislative civil obedience? Where did it include not to teach the people God's commandments? Where did it include men not fearing God? Where did it include men who refused to profess his law and his name? Where did it include to legislate over them incessantly and write new laws to govern and to provide liars to rule over the people? Where did it include not to judge? Where did it include not to work at self-governance in the will of the Creator? And where did it include to receive a payment? You see, these questions and more ought to be questions that we're able to ask if we're going to use Exodus chapter 18, verses 15 to 23, and Deuteronomy chapter 1, 9 to 17, as a proof text for representative self-governance. As I was preparing the study notes for this part of the message, I came across something that was quite interesting to me. Of course, Moses was born around 1597 B.C. He was the grandson of Levi, who was the great-grandson of Abraham, thus a Levite, not of Judah. Josephus attributes to him status in the Egyptian army and a hero of the War of Ethiopia. And this other little part that I found indicated that Jethro's descendant from Abraham, he was a priest of Midian in Numbers 10, 29-30. Now also what I found was this, quote, Midrashic literature asserts Jethro, Yitro, in other words the J is silent or is utilized a hard Y sound, Yitro, uh, coveted, uh, excuse me, converted to Judaism and called Gershelemet, Gershelemet, which means convert to truth. He was a kinsman of Moses' father Amram, and he compares him to Esau, a Horite also. Esau lived in Edom. The Y, as you use in this Yitro, was a solar cradle that indicated the ruler or the priest that was appointed by the overshadowing of the sun. Yitro, Jethro, descendants became leaders in the great Sanhedrin. Now, I thought that was a rather interesting aspect, as you'll recall how Christ had the exchange with those of the Sanhedrin in the Gospels. Now, once again, I say, as to those who wish to utilize these scriptures to indicate that this is the initial start 
of representative self-government, I think there's a distinct problem here. Because you have to contrast that with Moses' commands to teach the law, Deuteronomy chapter 11, Exodus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 10. Even Aaron, you know, commanded to teach the law. The Christian historian Eusebius indicates, quote, the gospel law, which is centered on Christ, was first revealed in the days of Adam, end quote. So, so far as we understand the gospel message and law was pivotal to God's people in America. And many of those in the colonial period understood it applicable to them. They also understood the legislative intent of judgment. It was for victim restoration, not the ruler or the judge or the state. In every instant where judgment was being executed, it was not as a penalty as deemed necessary by the ruler or the person in charge or the state or the nation. It was restoration. There are other scriptures that are also used, such as Exodus 19, 7 to 8, 1 Samuel 10, 24, 1 Chronicles 11, 1 and 3, 29 and 22, as justification for a constitutional republic or a representative form of government. But one should note, in no case found in the Bible is there a legislative session called for by God. God was to be their lawgiver, James 4.12. The law of God is unitary in nature for rule by one God, the Creator, God of Jacob, Israel one profession of him by all inhabitants, homeborn or stranger. It's become clearer to me that many of the framers, in contradistinction to the founders, were as diverse in their views as our current religious climate, first due to the Church of Rome, second due to the Church of England, thirdly due to the translations of the Bible into English, which was now being read for themselves. Fourthly, due to the condition of Roman legislative, British parliamentary, English and Greek legislative indoctrination. What had transpired in America between 1600 and 1789 was diversification, or liberalization, if you will, of the populace. The framers were busy trying to stuff the pluralistic or the synchristic foot of the emerging American society into the Cinderella slipper of the divine immutable laws. Let me explain. Let's take the word syncretism, for example. Syncretism is a word you've heard me use before in messages that I've done, but syncretism is the combining of different beliefs while blending practices of various schools of thought. Syncretism involves the merging or assimilation of several originally discrete traditions, especially in theology and mythology of religion, thus asserting an underlying unity and allowing for an inclusive approach to other faiths. Syncretism also occurs commonly in expressions of arts and culture, as well as politics, such as syncretic politics. End quote. This from the Encyclopedia Britannica on Religious Syncretism. 
religious syncretism, the fusion of diverse religious beliefs and practices. It goes on. Instances of religious syncretism, as, for example, Gnosticism, which is a religious dualistic system that incorporated elements from the Oriental mystery religions, so Gnosticism, Judaism, Christianity, and Greek religious philosophical concepts were particularly prevalent during the Hellenistic period, circa 300 BC to AD 300. The fusion of cultures that was affected by the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC, his successors and the Roman Empire tended to bring together a variety of religious and philosophical views that resulted in a strong tendency toward religious syncretism. Orthodox Christianity, although influenced by other religions, generally looked negatively upon these syncretistic movements. Syncretistic movements in the Orient, such as Manichaeism, a dualistic religion founded by the 3rd century A.D. Iranian prophet Mani, who combined elements of Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism, and Sikhism, a religion found by the 15th and 16th century Indian reformer Guru Nanak, who combined elements of Islam and Hinduism, also met with resistance from the prevailing religions of their respective areas. In the 17th century, a movement led by German Protestant theologian George Calixtus aimed at reconciling the differences between the Protestants in Germany, but his efforts were disparaged by Orthodox Christian leaders as syncretistic, end quote. So that's syncretism, but there's also another one, which is called pluralism. If we are to define pluralistic society, it would be defined this way, quote, a diverse one where the people in it believe all kinds of different things and tolerate each other's beliefs, even when they don't match their own, end quote. And another quote on pluralism, quote, pluralism refers to a society, a system of government or organization consisting of different groups that keep their identities while existing with other groups or a more dominant group. End quote. So what you had was Baptists, Quakers, Puritans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Dutch Reformed, Lutheran, Anglican, Protestant, Catholic, Methodist, Calvinist, Separatist, and yes, even Judaism, all part of colonial America. Adverse or pluralistic society was forming. The question was how to draw the competing views together or at least allow them an umbrella to co under which to coexist. Enter the brainchild of John Adams with the doctrine of separation of powers. Its purpose is to protect these diverse interests and beliefs. Although initially it was unpopular, but upon extensive discussions, this doctrine became a predominant doctrine and was eventually adopted in the American Constitution. Some have also suggested the legislative body of the Senate, which is in the Constitution for the United States, is taken from Numbers chapter 11, 16 to 25, and the 70, tri 70 elders of the tribes of Israel. Let's go to Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, and we'll begin reading there. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, 
whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them under the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with them there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves again tomorrow, and you shall eat flesh, for you have wept in the years of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt, therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and you shall eat. All right, let's stop there, because this is the appointment here that he gives at uh, Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, where he specifically delineates 70 men of the elders of Israel. Well, this suggestion is pretty thin. Some theologians believe that this group formed what became known as the Sanhedrin, and based on what I had just shared with you regarding uh, Jethro from the Midrash, Midrashic literature, could be part of the reason why some theologians have this belief. Although there is no biblical or historical record to that belief, at least as far as I have been able to glean and understand, and what we know for certain from God is that he tells Moses that he's going to give him tables of stone and a law and a commandment to teach them. So, ostensibly, this 70, or this Senate, by virtue of Article 1, Section 1, has the authority to approve whatever the underlings or the other captains basically legislate. But wait, the Scripture doesn't once indicate that they are to legislate. They were only to judge the causes, causes in accordance with God's law, in accordance with God's legislative intent. Secondly, this Senate, as you find in the Constitution, has the power to approve all presidential nominations to the executive and judicial branches. But let's hold on here just a minute. If this 70 has the power of approving all presidential nominations to the executive and judicial branches, you don't have any idea what this particular president is going to approve and who those people are going to be that would be approved. So, some questions. Does this Senate, the Constitution form, reject nominees that are not in accordance with the commandments given to the 70? Does it give it authority to do so? If Moses, as the chief executive of Israel, made appointments in the executive and judicial capacities, were they allowed to draw salaries? Were they authorized to adjudicate contrary to God's laws, statutes, and judgments? Was Moses authorized to appoint a sodomite, male or female? Were they authorized to pervert justice? Were these appointments authorized to add to or take away from the commandments, statutes, and judgments? Were any of these appointments authorized to lord over the brethren economically, legislatively, or to appoint a stranger? Were these appointments not allowed to have a copy of the law, as Deuteronomy 17, 18, 19 commanded? Would this Senate allow this executive to make treaties with unchristian nations or heathen nations? You see, I think those are sufficient questions. 
that we should be asking us regarding this Senate. So on the one hand, we have people who will point to these scriptures to say, well, this is where the 70, this is where the Senate is derived from. I don't I don't know where they get that from or how they derive it. 70 doesn't have anything to do with Senate. And our Senate is comprised of two representatives for each of the 50 states. So that's 100. So that doesn't uh, constitute any equivalence or anything. So I, I don't know where they get it or how they uh, come to that. But that's uh, that's what they do nonetheless. Now, to further support the Constitution of the United States of America, it's argued that Moses, by the Council of Deuteronomy 1, 9-17, which we just read a little bit ago, establishes a representative body of elders of Israel. And it goes like this. There was approximately 3 million people in Israel under Moses and approximately 3 people in colonial America. This represents roughly 600,000 households divided into 10 family households as 60,000 liters, 50 family households as 12,000 liters, and 100 family households is 6,000, and 1,000 family households is 600 liters, totaling 78,600 liters to share the burdens of 3 million people. In this sense, people proclaim it is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But I have to ask again, where does the scripture attribute any legislative power or authority? And furthermore, where in scripture can we derive an idea or a belief or a proof text that God is for a government of the people, by the people, for the people? In fact, Jefferson used this very argument and the ancestral and genealogical heritage of the Anglo-Saxons to prove it. And I quote, in ancient England, local self-government is found in connection with the political-territorial division of tithings, hundreds, burgs, counties, and shires, in which the body of inhabitants had a voice in managing their own affairs. Hence, it was the germinal idea of the Anglo-Saxon polity. End quote. Again, speaking of colonial New England, he said, quote, these wards of around 100 families called townships in New England are the vital principle of their governments and have proved themselves the wisest invention ever devised by the wit of man for the perfect exercise of self-government and for its preservation, End quote. Well, then why change it? Was not the vital principle of these New England colonies that they were to be governed by the laws of God. It was the early Anglo-Saxons who implemented them, not those of 1776 to 1789. Now, some might say, well, it's not necessary to quibble over Deuteronomy 1, 13 to 19, as to selection of rulers or election of rulers. And I frankly don't see the need either. However, I do believe whether selection or election, all of the people would need to know the person and their character. Our elections today, even at the local level of state, are often unknown to a majority of the people. This was the counsel of Reverend Samuel Langdon that he gave in a speech to the governor and the state legislature of New Hampshire just before they voted on the ratification of the Constitution. 
New Hampshire would have been the ninth state to vote, and if it ratified it, it would put the Constitution into full force and effect. This is from Conrad Cherry's God's New Israel. Quote, I will now lift my voice and cry aloud to the people. From year to year, be careful in the choice of your representatives and all the higher powers of government. Fix your eyes upon men of good understanding and known honesty, men of knowledge, improved by experience, men who fear God and hate covetousness, who love truth and righteousness and sincerely wish the public welfare. Beware of such as are cunning rather than wise, who prefer their own interest to everything, whose judgment is partial or fickle, and whom you would not willingly trust with your own private interests. When meetings are called for the choice of your rulers, do not carelessly neglect them or give your vote with indifference, but act with serious deliberation and judgment. Let no men openly irreligious and immoral become your legislators. If the legislative body are corrupt, you will soon have bad men for counselors, corrupt judges, unqualified justices, and every officer in every department who will dishonor their station. Let a superior character point out the man who is to be your head in this choice. Be always on your guard against parties and unworthy men. Let distinguished merit always determine your vote. Never give countenance to turbulent men who wish to distinguish themselves and rise to power by forming combinations and exciting insurrections against government, for this can never be the right way to redress real grievances. I call upon you to support schools in all your towns. It is a debt you owe to your children. I call upon you to preserve the knowledge of God in the land and attend to the revelation written to us from heaven. If you neglect or renounce that religion taught and commanded in the Holy Scriptures, think no more of freedom, peace, and happiness. Avoid all the vices and corruption of the world. The judgments of heaven will pursue you. There will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, and a day of solemn judgment when all mankind must give an account of their conduct in this world. End quote. Now that's pretty sound counsel. But just because we're organizing groups of citizens into a town or a township, as Jefferson was uh, extolling the virtues of the Anglo-Saxons, it's just that. It's an organizing method. However, everyone seems to want to ignore what Exodus 18.21-23 and Deuteronomy 1.13-19 actually convey. In spite of Samuel Langdon's message to those in New Hampshire to select for themselves righteous rulers and so forth, those two scriptures actually convey that the purpose of those individuals was to judge the people. So technically, it is not a structure of government of the people by the people for the people, but rather a structure of adjudication of the people, adjudication by the people, and adjudication for the people. This meant that they were self-judging, wrongs committed against one another. God's laws, for the most part, are reparation-oriented, designed to mitigate crime and the circumstance of it, and that which was not averted resulted in satisfying or making whole the victim. Reparations are a powerful deterrent and a mitigator of future crime. Now, I had intended to mention in Part 1 that Jefferson is purported as to have 
had designs on, and an intention on re rewriting the Virginia Criminal Code. But what I had found from the papers of Thomas Jefferson by Julian P. Boyd were several disturbing things, first of which was a rewrite of the arson statute. Arson requires restitution in Jefferson's rewrite threefold. But Exodus 22, verse 6 says, He shall surely make restitution. If it were corn, corn, stacked or growing. It doesn't say threefold, but, well, let's not quibble. Here's another one. Quote, If a person steal a sea vessel or goods laden on board or plundered or pilfered any wreck, he shall be condemned to hard labor five years in the public works and make good the loss of the sufferers threefold. But Exodus 22 says, A thief must make restitution or be sold if he has nothing for his theft. Jefferson also wrote that a robber, quote, shall be condemned to four years hard labor and in public works repay double to victims. The same penalty for burglaries at night, but during the day three years, and equal reparation to the victims. End quote. So as one begins to look at this, one wonders why God's law wasn't good enough and that Jefferson believed he had to improve upon it. Once again, the minute you try to say some of these things to most individuals, many immediately recoil in horror because we have held these individuals up as such icons of the Constitution in itself that it's almost bordering on idol worship itself. One writer even stated, quote, the method of compulsory exile under threat of death, for example, in Exodus 31.14, saying it called for exile being cut off from his people, just not all people, of course, this method of exile under threat of death would only work in a unitary society similar to the Israelites or the Anglo-Saxons. It would not work in a pluralistic society like the United States. Therefore, the framers did not adopt this remedial procedure of compulsory exile, even though it was being used by some European countries. Instead, the framers used traditional punishments appropriate to the severity of the crime. End quote. Notice how the writer tends to color it so as to get the reader to believe what the writer desires to be conveyed, and that is that they were more learned, more educated, more refined. So in other words, God's exile under threat of death in Exodus 31.14 was already being modified by the pluralistic society. And notice also that this writer also indicates that it would not work in a pluralistic society. It would only work in a unitary society similar to the Israelite or Anglo-Saxons. That right there gives you another proof that many of those who were and have written about these subjects do recognize that this was already a pluralistic society that was forming in the United States by the late 1700s. So these statements by this writer are pure poppycock. They're adopted according to the already emerging syncretistic society. 
Now bear in mind that part of the purpose of the series is to explore the idea or the preconceived notion and belief of America's Constitution being founded upon biblical principles. The quote I just read while supporting that position excused the exclusion of certain death penalty or banishment concepts as not very traditional. Not only that, as far as whipping goes, it is proclaimed that the United States Constitution was the first to ban cruel and unusual punishment, notwithstanding Deuteronomy 25.2, which prescribes whipping and, of course, stoning and even death penalties. So in conclusion of this part two, it should suffice to say that what we have is the legislative intent of God's divine immutable laws is first and foremost the responsibility of God's people to bring the application of these laws into the civil society. This is the legislative authority of God. He is the creator of the universe. He knows best how and what is necessary in regulating his creation. Third, and probably most important, is that the judgment is the Lord's. We are not to worry about the face of man. We are not to worry about what man thinks about those judgments, because those judgments are divinely inspired. And until we fully have them in operation, we cannot appreciate how well they actually work. And fourth, we can clearly see from the scriptures that the organizational structure, as counseled by Jethro, and even the structure of bringing the elders before God has very little to do with organizing a legislative authority over his fellow brethren, but rather a judicative authority to judge righteous judgment, judging righteously in accordance with the legislative intent of the divine immutable laws of God. So we'll stop here in this part two, and we'll pick it up in part three. Once again, I remain thankful for the opportunity to minister under those of the New Covenant, as Hebrews 8.8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 